hey Brett, this is the intro for 163. I've changed the ordering, so I think I said this is the intro for 163 for like what is now 169. Um, but this is the episode with Annie Gishuru. Here goes. Hello, hello. Welcome back, leading women in tech. Today, I have an incredibly important conversation for you. I am joined by my racial equity coach and consultant, Annie Kishuru. Annie has been in my life for six months now. I've known about her for 18 months because my coach worked with her and my coach spoke highly of her. My coach, Corey Javid, as you all know, if you've listened to this podcast before, she's I've worked with Corey for years and Corey introduced me to Annie and I knew I had a journey to go on in terms of up-leveling my anti-racism, my business to be more inclusive. The work I do is about equity, diversity, and inclusion. We do it through the lens of gender, of course. Um, I'm very passionate about that. If you've listened to the show before, you know that I do what I do, not because I love coaching. I do love coaching, but I do what I do because I fundamentally believe the human race desperately needs better technology. Better technology requires better technology companies. And in my mind, one of the fastest ways to do that is to make sure there's a more diverse voice at the table. And I come at that from the gender lens. That's the lens I understand. But I've known since I started on my equity journey more than a decade ago, the gender is just one tiny facet of the work I need to care about. I'm not going to go out there and become a special coach that specializes in women of color. I don't believe that I am at this point in my life anyway, equipped to do that. And I think there are many very talented coaches out there who could do a better job than me. But I do specialize in women and I want to call in more women of color. I want them to have a seat at the table. And I also just fundamentally as a business owner, I know my business will do better if I have a more diverse team. And my team, I got, I'm so privileged that my team work on this stuff with me. I have a team all over the world. We are predominantly white. I'm aware of that. We do have a black lady working with us. We have an Asian lady working with us. Uh, we do have a couple of men as well. <laughs> Actually, we've we've got we've got we've got more than just one Asian woman, but I don't have any black women working for me, and I'm aware that's a limitation of how my business operates and our ability to be innovative and fully inclusive, and that's just one of the things that has come up for me as a coach. But I've already known that this was an issue, but the work I have done with today's guest, Annie Gashuru, has really opened my eyes to how I need as a leader to change how I'm behaving so that we call in what my community needs from me, what my community needs to be doing and what I need to be doing first and foremost as a business owner as well. So I want to introduce you to Annie. Annie is one of the best coaches in this space out there. She's extraordinary. She only pivoted, I didn't know this until I recorded this interview, she actually only pivoted to doing this work a few years ago she works as a consultant. She, in particular, she's partnered with the Beautiful You Coaching Academy where she supports trainees and emerging coaches as a DEI trainer. But she works with people like me. She works with leaders. Her goal here is to make sure that we as individuals are deeply passionate about representation through that justice, racial justice lens. She combines her experience as an internationally certified coach with her love of storytelling. And part of what I adore about the way Annie works is her ability to really bring to life what we need to embody as leaders with privilege. Um, and she does that through storytelling. She has a background in HR, 
And that's what she uses to really deliver with such power. She has such grace, such gentle spirit. She is one of the most extraordinary humans I've had the privilege to know. And I can't wait to bring her to you today. She currently lives in Australia. She has lived in Australia, called it her home for 20 years. She was born in Kenya, moved to Australia as an international student and lives and flourishes there from all sounds of it. But I know she works with people all over the world. So without further ado, let's welcome Annie Kashiru to the show. Welcome to the Leading Women in Tech podcast, the show that celebrates women in technology leadership. I'm your host, Tony Collis, and this podcast is the result of my passion for building better tech by diversifying the leadership of the technology sector. Join me on this journey as I discuss all things leadership, what it takes to be innovative, breaking through the glass ceiling, be a great leader, and how to navigate the unique experiences we face as women in tech. So sit back, grab your headphones, and get ready to be inspired to become a better leader. Welcome to the show, Annie. I am beyond excited to have you here today. Oh, it is such an honor to be here, Tony. Um, I love you. I love the work that you do. And I'm excited for this conversation today. Well, start off by sharing with the audience a little bit about your career and how you became a racial equity coach. Well, uh, becoming a racial equity coach was never something that was on my to-do list of, you know, dreams or aspirations. I think it's a lot of life experiences and situations that led me here. So my background is in human resource management, um, having worked for over 15 years in the corporate space here in Australia, and being involved in projects to do with diversity and inclusion, but never from a race uh, lens. It was very much from maybe gender, disability, but never from that race lens. And it wasn't until switching to uh, becoming a coach and supporting my women of color to um, unshackle their self-limiting beliefs that I started seeing a gap in the way things are marketed, a gap in the way, you know, people were putting out, particularly in the coaching industry, support towards people who identify as, um, you know, people of color, Black, Indigenous, and so on. And just so that gap, a lack of representation, there was only one particular group of people who seemed to be served and who were getting, you know, sort of the goods. And I felt that that was an area that I wanted to step into and illuminate and tell our stories from a positive perspective. And then um, following the public execution of George Floyd, that's when I really, really saw the gap in terms of racial awareness and stepped into that fully. And that's how I came into the space of racial equity, um, specifically supporting online business owners. I, I hadn't appreciated, actually, despite the fact we've been working together this year, I didn't realize it was actually quite recent for you, this transition. Recent in the fact that I'm speaking out about it and coaching and holding space for it, but not new in terms of my professional experience, not new in terms of um, diversity and inclusion and my experience in it in corporate, not new at all, but perhaps in this space, 
having, it was very much focused on supporting, you know, migrant women of color, but seeing that gap and seeing their peers in this space who do not know this, and these were things that I had taken for granted, assuming, well, you would know how to hold space for, you know, Black, Indigenous, and people of color, but seeing that there was a huge gap, people didn't know that they were mm-hmm. excluding, people didn't know how to hold space, people didn't know how to market and be more inclusive in language and all those things that go into creating spaces that allow people to feel valued, seen, um, you know, feel welcome in the spaces that they're holding. And so this is where I saw the gap and so the opportunity to step into it. And there was demand for it as well, Tony. There was demand. Mm-hmm. People were asking to be educated. People were asking, I want to know this. So it was a very opportune time. And that is what has led me into, you know, doing this work in the way that I do it. And I think what sets me apart, Tony, which um, you relate to, is the way in which I do this work from a calling in lens, rather than a lens of calling out, hey, you over there, don't do this. You're making a mistake. This is not how you do it. I think just allowing people to bring their humanity of who they are, whether they know much whether, whether they know not much at all, whether they feel like they might stumble and say the wrong thing, allowing them to come as they are. And when they learn, they do better. And I think that's a way that mm. a lot of people in this space have resonated with and have found it a way that gives them permission to actually step into this work without feeling the fear in the way that they do that actually stops them from taking action. I I love that you said that. And I'm kind of jumping ahead to where I really want to get to with this conversation. And we'll have to come back to some of my other questions in a minute. But I really want to call this out because for me, that was life changing to have somebody who called me in. I've really, really wanted to do this work for a long time. I'm passionate about it. And, And maybe this is very selfish, but the psychological safety was missing in much of the space for me personally. And that just massively increases the barrier. That isn't an excuse for someone like me with my privilege to not do this work, but it does make it harder when you've got a hundred other things to be doing. And I just loved your approach and the amount of safety you brought to me and the other members of our cohort when we went through your program as business owners and as leaders in order to be able to do this work. And because you have to be safe enough to get uncomfortable, right? This work is uncomfortable. If it was easy, we wouldn't be still struggling, right? Absolutely. And you've just hit the nail on the head right there, Tony, when you said that um, you need to feel a level of safety in order to do this work. And I think that has often been the missing piece because there has been the need for we need white people to step up and do this work and understand the challenges, the setbacks, the barriers, everything that has happened to, you know, Black people, Indigenous and people of colour. Um, and so you need to get the table right now and you need to right your wrongs, but not necessarily thinking about what kind of space am I creating to facilitate those changes to take mm. place. And I think working with you and many others who have had experiences that haven't necessarily been positive and they have felt like, oh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I've been misunderstood here or I want to do this work. How can I do this without being made to feel a certain way? And I think what my clients have taught me is that not all white tears are harmful because there's this connotation or understanding that when white women in particular shed tears, it is out of fragility. 
And yes, there's that narrative. Yes, there is that, you know, uh, perspective and lens with which a lot of white women come to this work and get really fragile and, you know, they start shedding tears and cannot go past to the point of getting to do this work because then the roles get switched from educator to comforter you know, from coach mm-hmm. to somebody who's comforting and, and and it becomes about you, the white person, and not learning about, you know, what you need to do from a racial equity perspective. But what I've come to learn with a lot of my clients is that not all white tears are harmful, that there is a way in which you can hold space for them so that uh, you allow the person to come over on the other side and they're actually able to do this work actually stronger because they have been held in yeah. a way that was that affirmed them, you know, a way that didn't take mm-hmm. away their dignity, a way that didn't call them out and make them feel less than, but actually allowed them to be human in that space. And it obviously takes skill to do that. It takes an enormous amount of grace and compassion. But when you are able to do it in that way, I have seen so much more tremendous change and progress and people mm-hmm. staying in the work longer than those who dip their toe and get out because it's too hot to handle. Yeah, I actually, I love that you're calling out the thing about white tears here because we had tears in our group. And what I really felt with either the women around me while I was working with you, they were incredibly strong women. They were in, in, successful business owners and I believe all of us, the tears were, to a large extent, our empathy. We knew what we were learning, but we were we were exposed to it. We were having hard conversations. And I mean, you'd have to be, in my opinion, inhuman to not hurt as a result of that. And being told that we shouldn't then cry because of the pain of the people we're talking about, they're the ones that legitimately have the pain. And I, I completely agree with that. It's empathy at that point. And so I, I think it's human for us to do that. I think it meant as we were all closer to the work because we were like, we would never allow this to happen to us. So why are we allowing it to happen? Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Yes. It, we would never let that happen to us. Why would we let this happen? But I guess just to clarify where, you know, the white fragility comes in and the tears come in is when the roles get switched and we go like, you, the person mm. is now so affected so frantic and completely roles are changed and now it's a thing of pacifying it's a it's an it's a situation where like oh are you okay tony what can we do to make you feel Mm -hmm. better you know then that takes away from the learning absolutely Um, so it is understanding that there are different types of there are those tears that harm which are those ones that take away from the class take away from the space that we are holding take away from the lessons that we're trying to learn and there are those ones that are this is heartbreaking. It's impossible not to cry. But also when I have made mistakes, when I have, you know, done things that I didn't know I ought to have known better, but now I do, what is that space for me to be held in to 
right those wrongs to continue staying in this work despite how uncomfortable it is and the tears are flowing. If somebody can hold that space for me in that humanity, that allows me to pass and go through to the next level. But it is when those people who, particularly those who are new to this work, when they make a mistake, when they use the wrong word or use the wrong terminology, and they just get vilified for it, you know, they get harmed by the words that they've used, which they didn't know Mm -hmm. were doing the wrong thing. And so those are the people who are then kept off this work and others who are observing going like, oh, I'm very interested in this work. And you observe that and you see the experience somebody else has had and you're like, oh, I don't want to touch this work because you know what? I don't want that to happen to me. So that's the scenario where I'm talking about. It makes it very hard for people to push through this work and also just making that different identity that there are tears that harm and there are those tears that do not cause harm. And how can we hold you know, space for those so that we help people you know, make progress in this, stay in this work because we need everyone to roll up their sleeves and do this work. Yeah, I I really appreciate that this has been your your take on this. I mean, personally for me, this was a game changer. Just having that permission for us to be vulnerable. And I feel, I learned so much. I still got a long way to go in my journey as you and I have talked about. But I feel so much more informed and able to challenge, which actually brings me to my next thing anti-racism part of my job I now really appreciate I've kind of known this for a while but the work with you has really like sell this in me is to challenge more rather than allow things to happen that are uncomfortable for me but I don't know how to tackle it and this is my understanding this is part of anti-racism why are we now talking about being anti-racist why is rate not being racist insufficient Yes, that is such a good, good question because a lot of people, when they witness things to do with um, racism, they say, oh, but I'm not racist. You know, yes, that happened in our organization, but I am not racist. You see, when you use that term, I am not racist, it is almost like an excuse. It's a way of getting away with it. You're not racist, but what did Mm. you do about it? You witnessed that injustice. You witnessed that inequity, yet you did not do anything. Being anti-racist is when you witness that inequity, when you witness that injustice and you say, hey, what you've done there is not right, or that is not acceptable, or that has consequences. That is not something that we do. That is race, calling it out, calling it for what it is, not being silent in the face of injustice. That is anti-racism. But all of us can sit down and say, hey, I'm not racist, but yet do nothing. Mm. So it is not enough to say that you're not racist what we need and what you know a dr ibrahim x kendi who you know wrote the book how to be anti-racist you know talks about that concept of being active calling it out calling it what it is and not being silent in the face of injustice yeah it is that not being silent and that going back to what we talked about before that takes psychological safety and strength within us for those of us with this privilege of being able to stand up to say, I'm going to be okay when I call this out. And that's the work I really appreciate you doing with me is I'm I'm going to be okay. And therefore I have the strength to do that. 
And I think for many of our listeners, they, you know, the white privileged listeners, because we are privileged if we're white, I hope that they really hear that, that you will be okay. Would you agree with that, Annie? Like, what do you say to those women listening? I think the you will be okay comes after being in this kind of spaces that you and I have been in to know that you will be okay. For somebody who hasn't mm. dipped their toe into racial equity work, it's very difficult to see that because a lot of how this work has been painted, it has such a, a picture that makes you feel, I can't, it's hard, I don't want to make a mistake, or I don't want to go there, it's taboo. I've been taught not to talk about race. The, the, that is something that is, you know, we keep behind closed doors, yet I want to be part of this, but I don't have the language. There's always that fear of, what if I say the wrong thing? But when you're in a space where you're being educated, and most importantly, being educated with compassion, with grace, with kindness, with love, then you have that psychological safety of saying, I've witnessed this. I know I hold a privilege. I know I will be okay. I will speak up. But also, when you have been in this work long enough to know that, yes, I might be safe, but it will come at a cost. Being anti-racist mm. comes at a cost. Being an ally in whatever capacity, be it matters of race or gender or disability or supporting our LGBTQIA plus community, being an ally comes at a cost. It might cost you business. It might cost you relationships. It might cost you money. There are many things that it will cost you, but it's coming into this with that knowledge of, well, these are my values. If this is what it's going mm. to cost me, so long as it doesn't take away the dignity or the person that I am, my humanity, I'm okay with that. But it is not something that somebody who hasn't done this work can come to that realization on their own. They need to have done this work to come to that conclusion of, yes, I will speak up. Or yes, it might come at a cost. Am I ready to for that cost to happen? Yes. Other times people are not. And that is why they are silent because their mm. privileges could be taken away. The privilege of earning, the privilege of, you know, holding that position, the privilege of how you are viewed by your peers. So this work does come at a cost, Tony. The interesting thing is I agree it comes at a cost, but I actually think it comes at less of a cost than I think many of us thought. I, I mean, I've not put myself in a situation where I am threatened by violence. And I know there are situations where if I was out there challenging something, there could be some violence coming back towards me. I've not put myself in that position. Right now, this is such an immense privilege, but I'm not intending to do that. I am hoping my audience respects that from me. I think I can have more of an impact by calling things out that aren't going to put my life at risk having you on this show for example is one of the few things I'm doing that I just think we just need to have this conversation more but I think of all of us who actually feel this way like we want to do something and we're just feeling unsafe called out more in places where we're not physically threatened we could have such a huge impact I you know if if, if we just did that it, it would be immense would you agree 100%. It would be tremendous results because you hold so much influence within your spheres mm -hmm. 
of influence, you know. Take, for example, you know, we all belong to different tables. Some belong to the, you know, executive tables in boardrooms. We belong to our virtual tables here when we are having our, you know, uh, meetings uh, from home and we are joining the virtual community. But we also are part of our dinner tables, you know, the dinner tables mm-hmm. where we have powerful conversations with the people who mean something to us with the people that we love and when we're able to have conversations in the places where we feel safe and share our Mm. you know our input our opinions our beliefs the things that we are learning we're such a powerful position to begin to challenge the way people think challenge norms you know somebody might tell you oh but this is this doing this work means this and you're like hang on hang on I think you've got it wrong because I'm actually doing this work. I'm working with this person. And this is what my understanding is. These are the studies that we've done. These are the things that I'm learning. And actually what we've been taught has actually been incorrect. And what we've been taught has actually been put there to maybe keep us away from diving into this work. And so when you have that understanding, you're able to challenge, you're able to have more meaningful conversations and you're speaking from a place of knowledge. You're not guessing your way around. And so, yes, Mm -hmm. you have tremendous opportunity to have impact and influence in, in a very, very beautiful way. Yeah, yeah, spot on. Well, okay, I want to shift gears a little bit because I want to talk about some of the organizations that my listeners work for, maybe our CEOs of the organizations. Many of them will have a DEI component to their mission and vision. That's important to them. A lot of my audience is in the US and they will recognize Juneteenth, for example. So they they have this component, they care about it. And yet minority ethnic individuals still don't feel safe and included. What's going on here? Where are we going wrong as a as a culture? In my perspective, in my belief, it is because the work is being done from a tick box exercise. Oh, mm. but we've got a DEI, you know, department. Um, Annie runs our diversity and inclusion. She comes in monthly and has talks with, you know, um, senior leadership and the organization and different people in positions of leadership. The thing is, DEI is not a tick box exercise. It's part and parcel of how you do life and work mm-hmm. and business. And I think that is something that you have to understand once you begin doing the work. It's not an anti-bias course that you can do as part of your own boarding in the workplace and that be it and you're done. This is ongoing work. This is work that you have to plug into the same way, you know, you have professional development um, for your role and you're constantly evolving, you're constantly growing. Your learning is tied to the success of the organization and the business. That is the same way that DEI needs to be. It needs to be part and parcel of um, the organization, the goals, the the goals that the KPIs, because, you know, we need to take care of our people and having a background in human resources, as we know, our human resources are the most important, um, you know, assets that we have in the business. And if we're not taking care of mm-hmm. our people, we are missing out. 
And as you came to learn while we were working together, Tony, is that inclusion is tied to income. Inclusion is tied to revenue generation because you're tapping into diverse um, thoughts. You're tapping into people who are bringing new things to the table. But more importantly, you're allowing uh, people from diverse backgrounds to be part of the conversation. It's not a one-sided conversation that kind of tells everybody how it ought to be, but you're allowing people to come in and to collaborate. And I think the most um, disruptive organizations and companies we've seen out there is when things are done differently, not how things have been done historically, or there's one person kind of leading the way, telling everybody what to do. It's all about how can uh, we all work together. And when we work together, we are stronger than one person or one way of doing things. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. That's so true. Like when we are together, we achieve so much more. Well. If a company listening to this, well, an individual in a company listening to this wants to start their anti-racist journey, they want their organization to be more anti-racist. How does the company get started? How, what can they be doing? Where should they get going? I think it's it's finding people who are teaching this work that resonates with your values. Because I think a lot of times what a lot of people have been exposed to in the online space is seeing providers or people who don't resonate with you, or you're just like, I want to do this work, but that doesn't quite resonate with me and the kind of person that I am. This is so finding who are the providers in this space? Do they resonate with our values? Or are they teaching something that we believe would be beneficial and would come in and help us look at things from a different perspective? Right? So it is doing your homework and finding out who are the providers out there? Who can I partner with and champion with? But the most important thing that I want to lay down as a foundation here is don't just do it once. This needs to be ongoing work. This needs to be work that is mm -hmm. flagged in. I was having a talk um, today in one of the masterminds that I hold, um, activated actually, Tony. And one of the ladies in there shared that um, she had come from doing uh, a session. She's part of another group of business owners and leaders. And they have specific calls that are um, specific to anti-racism, anti-oppression. And these calls teach them very practical skills that they can bring into their businesses. And so that work has been embedded in how they're doing business. Mm. It's not an addition. It's not a side dish. It is part and parcel so that this becomes business as usual. This is BAU. It's not like, oh, by the way, we'll have a little bit of, of DEI here. Um, we'll do that once. 2020, for example, and then we are, we'll, we'll, we'll move on. The reason why we don't see any changes and any permanent changes is because this work is very knee-jerk reaction. It needs to be embedded. Yeah. It needs to be in the framework of organizations so that this is ongoing work and there needs to be buy-in from the top. If the CEO is not mm -hmm. part of this and doing his own journey or her own journey, or their own journey, then we're really not going to make progress. This is not for DEI to drive. This is actually the people at the top to drive. Yeah. Yeah. I That actually resonates a lot with my journey. I mean, I have dabbled before I met you in a broader DEI rather than just the gender stuff that my audience knows I'm passionate about. It's why I do what I do, is to make a better tech organization simply by having my more diversity. And I focus on the gender lens. And 
Earlier in my career, I did focus on more than just gender and I would do workshops on how to be more inclusive generally without professing to be an expert in anything other than gender. I'm a white woman. The only thing I experienced is um, sexism in that sense. And just having those conversations, I was aware, although I had support from the top, they didn't get it. They weren't attending these sessions and they didn't get it. They'd say things like, oh, we only hire the best. And I'm like thinking, do you not hear what you're saying? (laughs) But you couldn't, well, I felt like I couldn't challenge them at that point in my career. And I'll know better. I should have challenged them, even though I was that early in my career and I could have done. I didn't have the words. So, I mean, how does a listener to this get their CEO on board? What does the CEO need to understand to truly support this work? I think the CEO needs to have started doing this work, to be quite honest. They need to be the ones who are, you know, leading the way. And and here's the thing. Here's the thing, perhaps, that might open people up. A lot of times, particularly when it comes to uh, issues to do with race, a lot of people will say, oh, but I am not racist. I am so inclusive. I have friends who are black, Mm -hmm. friends who are people of color from all sorts of backgrounds. This work is not for me. This work is for those people who are actually, they're the people who you should be signing up for your programs, Zadi. They're the people who you should be educating, not us. We are fine. And therein lies the problem, Tony, because you come into this work thinking you're okay, but then you do the work and you realize, hang on, because we've all been influenced by systems of supremacy, systems of exclusion, we're all playing a part. We're all perpetuating. And so you don't Mm -hmm. know what you don't know until you start doing this work and you realize, ah, we are all part of the problem. And until we start doing this work and realizing the problem that we are causing or how we are contributing to this ongoing you know, inequity, then there isn't going to be change. So if you have a CEO who um, this work is not something that they have thought of or they're giving it to somebody else, it needs to come from them and having that conversation and say, share this podcast and say, you need to be doing this work because the change comes from within. You know, it's like how yeah. we bring up kids. You can't say, um, well, you go ahead and you get your education and you do what you need to do. You've got to play a role in contributing to the changes that you want to see and contributing to their growth. You've got to be sold on it. You know, as a mom of little kids, when they sign up for to learn an instrument, you're pretty much signing up to learn that instrument because you're the one who's going to be like have you practiced today have you done this song you need to do it again you have an exam that's coming up like you're invested and you're there Mm -hmm. to support them it's not something where you sign them up and you wash your hands no you've got to make time to go drop them off you've got to wait for them you've got to cheer them on you've got to buy the stuff costumes and all those things you're part of the production (laughs) you're you're part (laughs) of it you can't just kind of you know um hand it over and the same goes with with this kind of work you've got to be invested particularly if you want to see those changes from a business perspective you've got to be part of those conversations um, drive those conversations because they very much influence values and how that is related to values but it also allows people to respect you and look at you from a different perspective if you're the one who's driving Mm -hmm. and championing this people take it more seriously and people also hold it with a, a different level of urgency, a different level of importance, and you set the tone. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's it's that setting the tone is so important. But 
let me let's just give some practical tips to wrap this conversation up to the leaders who are listening who aren't necessarily the CEO who want to start on their journey towards building a more equitable and diverse team. A lot of the listeners I know manage teams. How can they get started on this journey? One of the ways to get started on this journey is to find how do you like to consume information? How do you like to learn? Because a lot of times we're given recommendations. Oh, this is such a great book, Annie. But will you read that book? You know, what kind of Mm. setup do you have? How do you consume information? For me, a lot of the times it's a podcast. So finding podcasts where you can begin to just have chew on that information that you're getting so that you're having that ongoing education happening for you. One of the ways that I've made it really, really easy um, or rather accessible for my clients and my students is creating, you know, um, resources where they can tap into. So the latest one that I've created is the racial awareness glossary and understanding language because language is incredibly important to understand. A lot of times we think we know what it means. Remember, like when you asked me, uh, what's the difference between saying you're not racist and being anti-racist? You know, Mm -hmm. when you understand the meaning of the word, then you act accordingly. You know, you're able to respond and have conversations in a way that actually is meaningful. And also you have the power of not being misled because a lot of times Mm. we're hearing words that come up with culture, you know, words like woke, which have completely been taken out of context from when it was first coined back in the 1920s. When you understand the historical, you know, factors that led to that, who coined it under what circumstances, the misuse, how it's supposed to be used you're in a you're in such an empowered position so I do have that glossary and it's just bite-sized you know sharing you know 20 of the most common terms that are used and just knowing what they mean and once you begin to dip your toe into this work in that way there's an empowerment that comes around where you feel like I didn't know that or I thought I knew that now I have a deeper understanding I will make sure that glossary, I actually want to download that glossary. Um, I don't think I've seen that before, but I, I will make sure that uh, the link to getting that glossary is in the show notes for everybody. So if that resonates with you, please hop over to the show notes, go download that. Like, so important. I would love to wrap this up, Annie, with some quick fire questions. Are you up for that? I am so up for that. Let's go. Okay. What is the worst piece of advice you've ever been given? In the online space, It is hearing constantly from business coaches say, let me share with you the secrets of what helped me build my six-figure business. So that whole line of using steal my template or use this, it's assuming that everybody um, one size fits all when it doesn't. And so being in this space for quite a number of years and just going like, oh, that might be the thing that helps me crack the code, when in actual fact, mm. it is not. So I have found that to be the worst advice ever. <laughs> oh, my God, I completely agree with you. I think, I mean, you and I, we were both work as coaches, but it's that recognizing the person in front of you has a solution. They need the mindset to get behind themselves. Uh, I, I so agree with you, actually. Like, oh, my God, there's so many templates out there for everything. And I see my peers as leadership coaches doing exactly the same thing. Grab this template for this. I'm like, no, <laughs> there's just too many nuances. It's, and it's mindset more than anything. 
Absolutely. And what worked for you might not work for me. You know, mm-hmm. we have different connections. We have different networks. We have different backgrounds. We have so many different things. It will not work in this exact same way. And so you're really setting people up for failure when you make those promises. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. Well, what is the best piece of advice you've ever been given? This is more of a quote than an, uh, than a piece of advice that I have found. I keep coming back to, and it's um, by Napoleon Hill. And it is, whatever your mind can conceive and believe, it can achieve. Because our minds are incredibly powerful. So whatever you can conceive, whatever you believe, um, you can absolutely achieve. And I believe that. I love that quote. I love that so much. It comes back to that mindset piece, right? What is the last book you read and would you recommend it? Ooh, last book I read. Gosh, it's come through recommendations over the years. And I finally uh, took the big leap. It's actually the big leap, Gay Hendricks. Uh And um, I am loving it because it talks about when you get to the upper limit and having the courage to go over that upper limit. And I feel like that's where I am currently in business and um, just wanting to push against that upper limit. And so The Big Leap, um, check it out. It is an incredible book that I am currently reading. Oh, definitely. I know many of my listeners, it's, it's different from taking a big leap potentially as a business owner, although some business owners listen to this podcast but I think that bit, the big leap I've read it and it is, it's uncovering what's what's holding you up and deciding to take the action, as you say, the mindset. Love that book. Oh, such a great recommendation. I will put a link to that in the show notes, listeners. Next question. What is your favorite mindset tip to help leaders become more anti-racist? Ooh, get the education for yourself find out you know a lot of times we rely so much on listening to the news oh that mm-hmm. person said that that republican said that or that right wing person said oh the left are saying this or the liberals and this and the other gather the information for yourself become a reader become curious and educate yourself rather than relying on the mercy of what other people's opinions mean and then you going with that side because of what they said, which could be very misleading, particularly when it comes to anti-racism work, work that is so charged and people have their own opinions about. Do your own homework, get credible sources, read from credible people. And in particular, I would have to say black people. Why? Because they're the people who have been impacted the most when it comes to issues of racism. And so learning from them, reading from them is you couldn't do better when it comes to that. Oh, 100%. I, I'm just going to like chime in here and say, come work with Annie. That's <laughs> what I'm going to say. Just for our listeners out there, life-changing work that I've done with you. Well, on that note, how can people find out more about what you do, connect with you, follow you? Where are you online? Sure. I am on Instagram. That is where I spend most of my time. My handle is annie.gishuru, G-I-C-H-U-R-U. I believe it will be on the show notes. And that is where I share weekly lessons, free weekly lessons on how to build a business that is racially equitable so you can be intentionally inclusive. You can head over to my website as well, find out everything you need to know, um, annie.gishuru.com. And I have a program 
program called Represented. And that is how Tony and I got to work together. It's a 10-week program. And basically, essentially, it takes you on a journey. That is the best way that I can describe it. It takes you on a journey from one where you think that you know, and it actually illuminates the areas that you didn't think you didn't know. And it really just opens you up and takes you on a journey of seeing how can you do better and not just in your business or in the workplace, but you as a human and really takes you to the point of allyship. How can you become that active ally who this is not just knee jerk reaction work or seasonal work, but this is work that you are in, um, in and out of season. How can you embed this in your business, in your workplace, in your life? And I think it's such a transformational journey and one that has been echoed as a must do for all leaders. And um, it was a it, it was a big, um, you know, testimonial to receive that. But it's feedback that I have received over and over and over that I can now confidently say this is a must have um, course to do program. Oh, 100%. I, I second that having gone through it. I want my entire team to go through this course. I think every leader, anybody who is aiming to be responsible for more than themselves should expose themselves to this kind of work. And I highly recommend what you do. I mean, your time with me has been life-changing, Annie. I just from the bottom of my heart, I thank you so much for how you've held me over the last six months. It's been incredible. It's been an absolute joy. Uh, it's it, it's meeting people like you, Tony, and people who genuinely want to make a difference, genuinely want to do better, that makes this work that can often be difficult, really, really fulfilling. So I'm grateful to you and the journey that we've taken together. Oh, thank you. Any final thoughts you want to leave my audience with? A final word of wisdom. Racial equity work can feel charged, it can feel uncomfortable and it is uncomfortable, but you know what? It can also be fun. It can be fulfilling. It can be life-changing and it has the potential to just leave a legacy. You know, leaving a legacy is impacting the lives, every single life that you touch here on earth. And this work does that. And that's where it gets to be fulfilling. That's where it gets to be meaningful. And this is work that we should all take on, regardless of how we identify, you know, whether we are white or black or indigenous or brown. This is work that we should all take on because in order for us to see the changes that we so incredibly want to see, it takes each and every one of us. A hundred percent. Well, thank you so much for sharing your words of wisdom today, Annie for agreeing to come on this podcast and just allowing my audience to hear just a tiny, tiny fraction of what I have had the honour to be part of. And I really hope that some of you listening here are feeling excited and empowered to start this journey for yourselves. Continue it if you're on this journey. Please reach out to Annie wherever you are in the world. Annie's in Australia. I'm in the UK. She works with people everywhere. And I cannot recommend her enough. Like, please, please, if this has resonated with you, drop her a note, if nothing else. Even if you're like, I don't know if this is the program for me, drop her a note. Like, I, I would talk about you all day. <laughs> Listeners, remember, as always, stay on your technique shit game. Follow your dreams because the world really does need that uniqueness that you bring as a leading woman in tech.